We want to work on burnout and efficiency and making it easier for people to do the important work that they need to do and still clock out at five o'clock and have a life and have a family and stay in this industry, right? We, we have to solve for that. And I really think Cooler can help. Hello, this is the Great Battlefield Podcast. I'm Nathaniel G. Perlman. A great political battle is being fought right now between progressives and the forces of reaction on the other side. This show is about the political entrepreneurs and other progressive leaders who are finding new or improved ways to fight. My guest today, Hillary Lair, is the CEO of Quiller, one of the first companies to apply generative AI to political campaigning. Quiller helps Democrats and progressives write drafts of fundraising emails and helps produce other content types as well. Hillary came to her new company after helping a lot of other political tech startups through her work at Higher Ground Labs. She brings a lot of experience in the space, including with Hustle in the early days. Hillary and I had a good conversation about what she's done since we last spoke in 2019. You should listen to that if you haven't. And about why she took the role at Quiller and what she's doing there. So after a quick word from my sponsor, my interview with Hillary Lair at Quiller. What do Blue State, Sierra Club, and Indivisible have in common? They all use Civic Shout to grow email lists that raise money like clockwork. And now, so can you. Instead of vaporizing money with Facebook ads or burning bridges with spam, a new wave of digital directors are helping Democrats and nonprofits acquire opt-ins and nail their monthly goals with Civic Shout. Environmental Action called Civic Shout a wildly better way to grow your email list, and Clarify Agency saw a 200% return on ad spend in just two months. Head to civicshout.com forward slash partners to learn more and schedule a demo. That's civicshout.com forward slash partners. How's life treating you? Life is good. My wife and I bought a fixer-upper out in Sacramento during the pandemic, and it's finally just about fixed up. <laughs> Thank you for taking the time today. Oh my gosh, I'm I'm so happy to catch up with you and chat more. We're at a really exciting moment. Is this the fixer-upper that you're talking about that I'm? Yeah, it's a 1915 Craftsman. I kind of grew up in one of those in Boulder, Colorado. Oh, nice! Boulder's great. It's absolutely yeah. beautiful there. We have cove ceilings, which is lovely. Those are the best. They just don't make them like they used to. Hillary, it's been three years since we talked. And when we talked last, you were at Higher Ground Labs. And you spent over four years in that role. From everything I can tell, you must have found one of the funded companies to be so exciting that you had to jump to it. But why don't you tell me the story of how things went at HGL subsequent to us talking and how you land now as CEO of Quiller. Yeah, absolutely. So I spent four years at Higher Ground Labs. I joined in 2019, just ahead of the pandemic starting. So a lot of my work at HGL once the pandemic began was an immediate lift that all of us in the ecosystem participated in, which is just a rapid transition to fully digital campaigning in the middle of a presidential cycle. So our thought leadership activities went online, our trainings went online, 
our guides pivoted to supporting campaigns to moving from a ground game really to a completely online and digital outreach strategy. And that really transformed a lot of organizing for the long haul. I think as the pandemic has subsided, we've really found pieces of our adaptation strategy that we'll retain for digital efficiency and other pieces of person-to-person contact that were sorely missed and happy to be getting back to to door-to-door and face-to-face conversations that are so integral to civic engagement. As we started to solidify learnings from the 2020 cycle, the 2022 midterm cycle, the switch to into the post-pandemic campaign strategy, there were a number of themes that emerged in the research that we were doing at Higher Ground Labs that we worked to document and incorporate into our investment thesis work. So every year, Higher Ground Labs puts out the political tech landscape report that tracks trends, evolution, needs, existing gaps, and exciting new innovations in the political tech ecosystem. And we conduct research for that report in concert with dozens of stakeholders and experts in the space, really grounded in practitioner voices, what we're hearing from folks on the ground who are deploying these tools or struggling with certain gaps that still exist. And it's from that feedback that we create the political tech landscape report and the Higher Ground Labs investment thesis. And the goal with the investment thesis is to really attract startups and early founders who are bringing tools to market that solve those gaps and fill in where we need ongoing innovation to make campaigning better, more efficient, and easier for folks on the ground. Year after year, as we were putting out our investment thesis and updating that really complex political tech landscape map with all the the different logos, it kind of evolves year to year. One area that I never had that many logos to, to add was in fundraising. We have a lot of new voter contact tools, the rise of influencer outreach and new types of social media-based relational overlap organizing has expanded dramatically. There's incredible new tools for data and analytics, for message testing and refinement. Companies like Swayable have just paved the way for us doing better message refinement for campaign outreach of a variety of mediums. But when it comes to fundraising, it hasn't changed a whole lot in the past several years. And so we've continued to put innovation and fundraising in our investment thesis and put it out into the ether to see what would come back. But we didn't have a ton of new companies approaching Higher Ground Labs until recently. When Higher Ground Labs creates the investment thesis for our our accelerator every year, we are, with that model, going to be grounded in who comes back and applies to join the accelerator even though there are amazing founders every year that come in and amazing proposals that we see at Higher Ground Labs, sometimes there can also be space where Higher Ground Labs can play a role in incubating startups and actually going even further up the pipeline into helping to bring a great idea into a minimum viable product, an MVP, and then helping to bring that to market. We've talked about it a little bit here and there, kind of kicked the tires on incubating startups in the past. But the idea for Quiller really came out of an unmet need to start to experiment with how we can best utilize artificial intelligence. And we were convening a tech debrief in Atlanta in January 2023. And one thing that came up repeatedly in the debrief, in the landscape report research, in all the interviews that we conducted to create our investment thesis was burnout and the revolving door of talent in our space. People are tired. 
we've been through a lot. People that join political campaigns and the political ecosystem as Democrats are doing this because we believe we can make the world better, right? So there's no real separation for those of us who who work in this space between our morals and our passions and the work that we do all day, every day. And it's hard to find folks who aren't pulling 10-hour workdays, six days a week during the most active parts of the campaign cycle. And what happens is when we have entry-level staff that are overworked or underpaid, at the end of the cycle, we have a natural offboarding. And then we lose that talent to other industries where they can be better compensated. And this was something that came up repeatedly, the burnout issue. So that's, that's one of the factors, right? Now, Mike Nellis, the CEO of Authentic, which is a democratic messaging and, and fundraising firm, was one of the attendees at the debrief in Atlanta and approached Higher Ground Labs and said, hey, I have an idea. Can we teach a robot to write emails? And this is really early in the AI conversation that took off in 2023. A lot of the chat GPT and rising familiarity with generative AI really took off like Q2. And Mike was really one of the first people to say, how are we going to leverage this in political tech and in democratic campaigns? So we started chatting with Mike a little bit more. And that's really how the idea for Quiller was born. It was saying, how can we leverage this new type of technology to help combat the burnout that we're seeing and get more efficient about the ways that we campaign because there's so much work to do. So it went from an idea to more frequent meetings, and we looped in a phenomenal product development firm called Able, which helped us build out an MVP of the product, engage in some early refinement of the LLM, which since then has become a very robust customization and tagging training process that we engage in to create the cooler product. And we created an MVP and started testing it out, started working really closely with folks on staff who are responsible for generating tens or even hundreds of emails per week, testing out the tool. We got great feedback and said, hey, you know what? We have something here that could be really valuable, that could be really helpful for these teams. Let's do it. So as we started to prepare to launch Quiller in summer of this year, I offboarded from my full-time work at Higher Ground Labs and passed the baton on our accelerator and landscape report to the amazing folks on staff at Higher Ground Labs and transitioned into a part-time operating partner role there. So I can still be involved and keep a toe in HDL and our ecosystem work, but ramp full-time as the CEO at Quiller, it was really about finding the way to bring a brand new type of technology to market. And introducing new technology in the political tech world is a challenge, right? Uh, There's unique circumstances that come up when we're trying out new tools and when campaigners and staff who are responsible for selecting new tech have to engage in evaluating what is a good product or a bad product? How are we going to define the success metrics for a new tool? How can we set uh, agreements that show that the value of this product match our values as democratic organizations and campaigns? So there's a lot of work, close partnership, really good product development, ethical questions to ask, definitions to create, guides and materials to develop, Um, that go into creating a brand new type of technology and bringing it into the space. It reminds me a lot of the early days at Hustle. So back in 2016, we were in the middle of Democratic primaries, and I met Perry and Isiad, who were super early at Hustle, in a cafe. And, you know, Perry pulls out his computer and is and shows me this really kind of early, very, very early stage, kind of almost a wireframe of a product 
and says, we're piloting this with a really exciting organization and shows me how it kind of cues up a text message and you hit send, cues up another one, you hit send. And it was the first time that I'd ever really seen this type of texting. And I saw the personalization that it could create. And I said, wow, I see what this can do. This can be really amazing. And at that time, we didn't even have a term for peer-to-peer texting. <laughs> we ha- I remember the meeting several months later where we had to come up with a term to describe peer-to-peer text at Hustle because we needed a way to distinguish it from broadcast in our sales conversations. But it was a brand new type of technology. So a lot of bringing peer-to-peer text into the 2016 electoral space reminds me of bringing... AI into the 2024 campaign space. Because basically after that demo, I said, this is really cool. I see the power of this. And Perry said, well, what are you doing the rest of the afternoon? And I said, I don't know. He's like, come on. And I I went back to the Hustle office, which then was like one tiny room with like a, a mini fridge and the microwave and a printer. And that was it. And just started working. It was right before the Nevada primary. There were really early days at Hustle that have influenced a lot about how I think about the responsibility and opportunities that exist. And I want to lean on that a lot at Cooler. I'm happy to be in a CEO role there because I care about creating successful companies that do good and do well. And I also think it's really important to have people who are committed to stakeholder success, leading and building these companies so that we create companies that are responsible. And when it comes to artificial intelligence, there's a lot of very legitimate concern and dialogue at a societal level internationally about how we roll out AI responsibly. And I think there's even more intensity and importance of having those conversations in the political tech ecosystem because we also want to make sure that the companies we build embody the values that we have. And so I'm happy to be a stakeholder in that conversation, really shaping the trajectory for Quiller in that way, because I feel a responsibility to do right by our space. There is, I think, a revolution in AI right now. The steps that have recently been shown, both in generative things that are visual, graphics, and in text, show the potential to really change all kinds of industries. It seems very likely that AI will remap things. And uh, I've been, as you probably know, interviewing other CEOs and founders of other HGL, AI, and politics organizations, which seem to have sorted themselves out into slightly different parts of the political arena, applying some of the same tools. I guess my first question is, as someone who somehow has a foot in both of those camps, how do you sort out where you are versus where the others are, especially because anybody who is ambitious and has raised a lot of money is likely to broaden their ambitions over time? In the early days, it's always tricky to know exactly where a company is going to go in terms of its product offering because there's so much that's unknown. And any good startup is going to refine and reserve big chunks of the product roadmap for those early customers and early users who come in and show us what they want, right? And then we can build it and, and better service the market with that direct feedback. And This is something that we coach founders at Higher Ground Labs on often is make sure you're building with, not for, because ultimately there are unique tech needs that exist in political campaigns. And it's important that we are listening and building 
in partnership so that we accurately meet those needs and put campaigns in the best possible situation for all that they need to tackle. Early on, we can build something that has traction, something that we're hearing from customers is working and is really helpful and start to build from there. As we're doing that, we're also discovering what we're good at and what our lane is. And one of the ways that we've been starting to think about it at Quiller is let's specialize in content production, right? So if our lane is going to be using generative AI that's very well-trained, very well-customized, and delivers really high-quality content, we can probably diversify the content types more easily than we can build a whole suite of product tools like, you know, a a CRM or something. So the way that we've been thinking about Quiller's growth so far is really diversifying the content types that we enable our clients to create. It started out with fundraising emails. That's still our bread and butter. Heaven knows we need to produce a lot of fundraising emails in 2024, especially down ballot campaigns that are able to run email fundraising programs. The more robust and diverse our campaign bench is going to be up and down ballot next year, which is really important. But also, we have a lot of money to raise, right? We saw a 15x increase in the cost of ads in the midterm cycle. The expense of campaigning is going to go up. I think the latest estimate is a $10 billion election next year. It's unfortunate that so much of that goes to ads and so little of that is spent on organizing or on technology for that matter. We kind of end up with the scraps of the budget in a lot of ways. We have seen it change over time, but you know, the bulk of that money is, is kind of spent in, in ads. So when you say diversifying content types, Do you mean we will also get into voter contact emails or other types of campaign communications that need to scale or would be helpful if they scaled? Yeah, exactly. So we started out with fundraising emails and we need a lot of those. We also have already expanded to several other content types that are currently available on Quiller. So there are engagement emails, which you can use to share updates, to invite people to events, to ask people to take action. Maybe you have a call-in day or a petition you want to invite folks to sign. You can use the engagement type in Quiller to create content for that. We also have a rewrite tool. So a lot of campaigns will have an email that performs particularly well. You can just plop that text right into your workspace and rewrite a similar version of that email. We're also building out SMS. So you can currently also create SMS copy in Quiller in addition to all those email types. And we're working on several others right now. We have some really exciting conversations that we've had with prospects and potential clients who are interested in things like op-eds or talking points or maybe a Canvas script, things like that. So so does that run you into an overlap with any of the other HDL-funded companies that you have one foot in trying to help? I do think that there will continue to be a good amount of overlap. And I do think at the end of the day that competition is healthy, right? Because it keeps all of us on our toes and it makes us continue to meet the demands of the market in the most effective way. When you're talking about generating a fundraising email, are you doing that on a person-by-person basis using information? For example, one of your funders has emailing data on an individual basis. Are you able with your tool to put in specific data about me that goes only to me? Or is this an email that is generic across a group? The latter. 
So we are really excited to be hearing from clients who are starting to get unbottlenecked on content creation so that they can do more testing on personalization, customization of content delivery based on interest level or other demographic info that can stand as a proxy for relevance. And the experiment there would be to see, okay, if we can get unbottlenecked on content creation, can we then use more sophisticated targeting to deliver increasingly personalized content in a way that motivates the recipient to engage more deeply, to give more deeply, to participate more fully because they see they feel seen and heard by the entity that's reaching out to them. That would be something that the client would use a diversity of quiller copy to create. So that's going to happen in their CRM or their targeting tools. And we'll just be the content engine that's delivering more drafts personalized in different ways. So the way that the quiller workspace works, so we have our LLM. On top of that, we've trained and customized the LLM on thousands of pieces. Large language model for those who are uninitiated, yes. (laughs) So we trained uh, a customized large language model on thousands of pieces of professionally produced, democratic, and progressive content that's been hand-tagged and trained so that the LLM functions specifically within our talking points and value sets. Is that all from authentic or is that from a variety of emails from different vendors and campaigns? And did you have permission for all that training? Something controversial, obviously, in the AI world now. Yeah, we worked very closely with the authentic team and had their blessing to move forward with that. But did you also use from other consultants or firms? No, there is a larger conversation about once an email is sent out into the ether, does it become the public realm? Who does it belong to at that point? Right now, we're just early enough that we're just focusing on the content that we know is really high quality, <laughs> that we know has performed well, and that we have the ability to use within that scope. And w- even within that, there's so much that goes into for every piece of content that you use to customize your instance. How do you tag it? How do you train your tool to best match the voice and values? But it is important to train it with very well tagged content so that you can mitigate a lot of the bias that exists in off-the-shelf LLMs because they're being trained on the entire internet. Who knows what's out on the internet? The talking points that we use in democratic and progressive campaigns is very specific. And so an LLM off-the-shelf isn't going to mitigate a lot of the bias. It's necessary to take a large volume of customized training copy so that the model learns how how we talk in this space and have that as the base model. It's quite a painstaking process. When you look at the results of that, I've seen your estimates, I think, that it gets you 70% of the way there and that you it does require still the intelligence of a human being to take it the rest of the way and get things right and, I don't know, fact check, things like that. But- What is your personal reaction to what is getting generated out of your tool before being fixed by a person? I think it's impressive. Yeah. I think it shows that we've actually come a really long way in a short amount of time in terms of our ability to take an LLM, customize it, and then create a a detailed enough internal product to train the model to produce copy that's actually workable and that actually saves people time. It's absolutely essential that they don't think about it as a replacement for staff. It's not designed for that. It's not capable of doing that. And it's not what 
we should be doing with AI in the space. We don't necessarily have to start from scratch with a blinking cursor on a blank page in order to get copy for all of the emails that we need to write next cycle. That's not what anyone does, right? People, when they write emails, when there's no robot involved, they look at other emails. They take text from them. Yeah. There's a lot of copy and paste template work that happens. There's a lot of people who are using tools like ChatGPT, et cetera. However, ChatGPT has prohibited political use cases and so have a number of other large-scale LLMs. And so the -the off-the-shelf content isn't going to get the level of quality that matches voice that's needed for content in our industry and also has all these restrictions. So you'll need to train every time you put a prompt through ChatGPT, even if you can get it through without the political flag, you have to train it on so much content already. It's not an efficient process. At the end of the day, you're not saving really much of any time. That's not the appropriate success metric for AI tools in the space. We should be measuring dollars raised per hour spent or recruitment rates per hour of effort, right? So that we're getting to an efficiency metric that empowers teams, not A-B testing team or no team. It's just not the right way to look at AI in the space. It's always going to need to go to staff for fact checks, for emotional nuance, for details around current events, since all of these tools only have access to so much precedent, right? So this is always going to be something that is a first draft that then goes to a teammate to refine. One of the other HDL-funded companies has a database of North American news that they use to customize the things that are being concocted by that application. Have you considered that kind of move or what's the balance of consideration there? Yeah. So, I mean, a, a lot of the biggest giving moments across the ecosystem are response into watershed current event crises, like the the passing of, of Ruth Gitter. Bader Ginsburg, for example. The way that we approach that in the Quiller product is once you train your Quiller workspace on your voice, then you're ready to start creating content. And in a number of the Quiller content creation flows that we have, we have the ability for people to paste in excerpts of articles, quotes, or other contextual information about current events, and then merge those to generate a response. So that's going to be a focus more on context on a current event, but within the frame of how you talk about it and generating a draft that way. I remember when I took a a labor history course in college, the professor spoke rather lyrically about the skilled work of the coal miner who used to pick. It was a good living. Even if you're underground, they took pride in knocking the coal off the side of the tunnel in the best way. I think he felt very mournful about the loss of that type of job to giant machines. I'm not saying the exact analog, but clearly you've been thinking about what does this do to to a common entry-level job for smart people in campaigns, which is writing email content. You kind of led off with talking about burnout and how this might help ameliorate that by getting rid of some of the tedious parts of this. But clearly, the better that your tool gets over time, probably there's fewer people writing email content. That doesn't upset me. You can't necessarily stop the tide of change. 
talk about the job of the fundraising email writer and your product and your place in the space. Absolutely. And again, I want to make it very clear that the way that we've designed the Quiller product and focused on building a company that offers a generative AI resource in the space is always as an accompaniment to the hard work that teams are already doing and not a replacement to staff. It's built into our company values. It's built into the design of the product. And I hope that other people who are building generative AI tools in this space will also follow a similar philosophy. But you could easily imagine that three people could now do the work of five people. And hopefully the campaign has the same amount of money and can find put those two people to work on something else. But if things go well, you're going to have fewer people writing emails for a particular campaign than before. I think that it will take less time to write the emails that are written, but there's still five people's worth of work to do. The fact is that we're just not getting to the other 50 things on our to-do list that we need to do. We're also bottlenecked on content creation, which is stopping us from being more creative and more experimental in the programs that we run. So imagine if we weren't bottlenecked on content creation. Think about all the other things that could be freed up for that person to do with their time reactivation programs, supporting experiments like you were talking about earlier, deliver more customized content per person based on their interest level to start to experiment if we can increase voter enthusiasm or donor enthusiasm with these other content types. If we can start to unbottleneck ourselves at the point of content creation, there's so much more that creatives can and want to do with that time. But I think we need to make sure that people feel comfortable that they're not going to be replaced by these tools. And that is really the responsibility of the managers of firms who are introducing these new tools to create agreements with their staffs and also to get input from creatives on their teams about what else they would like to be doing if they have an extra hour in their day. That said, we have to stop doing this like we're going to be replaced thing when people are working 10, 12 hour days and six day weeks. <laughs> like we're the first step is to stop overworking our precious teams. Like we're, we're burning them out. We're spinning them out of the industry every single time. So the first order of business is just like a overworking harm reduction, right? Like let's get to a sustainable place. Is there a world where we could start to explore a four-day week in this Not industry? Not on campaigns, no. <laughs> Is that a world, right? Organizations that are taking advantage of new technologies are starting to experiment with a four-day work week, right? So the more appealing and sustainable we can make these industries and the more interesting and intellectually challenging we can make a lot of the workloads, the better we'll retain talent and staff. There's always going to need be a need for individuals to create content. The ways that we facilitate that process can speed up in incredibly creative and, and advantageous ways. If I could just give one other example. So graphic designers, right? Make ugly things beautiful. I can't even pretend to have any graphic design skills, but you know, when you work at a scrappy startup, sometimes you're on the hook for creating a graphic or creating an image or training material for a partner. I remember using paint, you know, like, do you remember that app? Like on my first computer when I was in high school, it's like huge computer and I used paint. It was so difficult to create anything. And now we have Canva. In a couple of minutes, we can create beautiful graphics. We have access to open source template libraries. We can finally create graphics that start to look really polished and professional in a matter of minutes instead of hours. 
graphic designers still play a pivotal role in their organizations and companies. There's so much more that they can do. There's more content that they can create overall. There's other tasks that they can get to. There's experiments that they can support. Although AI may start chipping away at some of that as well. I mean, that's just the nature of it. Yeah. Yeah. It will continue to evolve and it'll evolve rapidly. I think the main point that I want to make is that we shouldn't be afraid of these new tools. We should be very quick to embrace them and make them work for us. And us is all of our teams. I think I actually agree. One of the challenges, you have some funding from grassroots analytics, but there's Mission Wired, which is somewhat similar in the data that they sell. Authentic owner is the founder of this company, but there are lots of firms that compete with Authentic in the space. Do they get most favored nation status or are you going to serve as equally a partner to any CRM or any digital campaign strategist or any data source? What's the plan there? Yeah. It's been wonderful working with the Authentic team as our earliest adopters. They really helped show a lot of those early use cases and how we could best refine the product to support their teams and save them time. But there are so many firms and campaigns and organizations that are also strapped for time that could take advantage of the resources. So our goal is to make sure that anybody can use the tool so long as they are a Democrat or progressive. Being limited to Democrats and progressives is in our company charter. It cannot be changed. So that's the table stakes for us for who we work with. But that said, anybody within this space is welcome to use the tool as long as they stay within the terms of service. I remember that when I was first building fundraising software back in 1997, I thought briefly about whether I should have my own fundraising firm. And I raised that with clients and got a whole lot of pushback. Is what's different about you and your relationship with authentic that won't run you into that same problem. Like I might be hesitant at least at first, if I were any of dozens of other firms like that to be like, I want to put my firm on this tech that is associated with another firm out there. Got it. A couple things. We put a lot of thought into how we could make sure that people realize that this was a tool that they can use and feel comfortable using. The first is the privacy policy. So any Quiller customer owns all of the content that they create on Quiller. It's theirs. No one else has access to it. We don't train our model on it. We train our model on user feedback. If it's trained on authentic text and I'm a different firm, could I have a version of Quiller that's trained on my emails, not on their emails? The base model is always going to be trained as a whole that's available to everyone. And that's a continually expanding training model. If you add another firm that does it, would you add in their content to be used by everyone then as part of the training? Yeah. So that's one of the things that we launched in Quiller right off the bat was a writing style guide that allows an organization to paste in the top example emails that they want their content to sound and feel like and customize their Quiller workspace to match that writing style guide. Um, They can also paste one in directly if they want, but it's going to be the differentiator for their instance of Quiller where they're training the model on their agency or candidate voice, writing style, and content. 
instead of just replicating the base model that it's trained on. So there are ways for agencies, firms, campaigns to train Quiller on how to sound and feel like them based on their own content that they put into the tool. And they own all of that. There's no one else that has access to it. You raised over a million dollars for this in a pre-seed round. That's a lot in the space. It's fairly rare to, to get that. What is it about the business that makes you confident that there is that much need for it, that it can scale? Tell me about what you see in the opportunity that made you so ambitious and made you want to jump into it. I think Quiller is incredibly viable because it solves a real problem. So any successful SaaS product that you see go to market, first and foremost, it has to solve a problem. I really wanted to hit the burnout problem because at the end of the day, people are the lifeblood of campaigns. And if we're losing talent, then we're losing our ability to run the best campaigns possible. So I wanted to make sure that anything that I worked on helped hit that problem. The second is taking advantage of new tools. I think artificial intelligence is going to be incredibly transformative, not only in our ecosystem, but nationally and globally. And I want to be a part of a company that is creating solutions in that space that solve real demonstrated problems in a way that's affordable and accessible to candidates and organizations of all sizes. And, and does that mean that you're interested in, say, nonprofit fundraising or international nonprofit fundraising or all of the analogous types of fundraising that's out there? If you look at a Blackboard or a, one of the big fundraising CRM firms or data providers, educational institutions. It's a huge market. Is that where you're going in the long run? Absolutely. I think fundraising is difficult for organizations of all kinds. And a lot of the email programs that are run have a lot of similarities. What we need to make sure we do as Quiller is for every different type of partner that we have, that we're providing them with really high quality content. That's our, our table stakes for any type of partnership that we work on. It's been really exciting as we launched the company at Netroots Nation in Chicago in July. So many nonprofits signed up for our wait list. So we really had some nice opportunities early on to start talking to nonprofits about what their needs are, what their content types are, because their fundraising email programs mechanically might be similar, but from a content perspective can actually be quite different. So the types of prompts, training, and inputs that are going to comprise an effective LLM for a nonprofit fundraising program could be quite distinct from a political use case. So part of offering a good product in that space is making sure that whatever we're training Quiller on results in good time-saving content for the nonprofit client in the same way that it does for the political use case. So far, there's been some really promising results there, which has been great, I think very encouraging. It's always nice when you have a startup that can build a product that solves a longstanding problem in the political ecosystem, but can also build a sustainable business that works with evergreen clients. The obvious follow-on question it, especially from someone who spent some time at Hustle, I've had some experience in this area myself, which is sometimes even if you begin in the campaign ecosystem and you fit that really well and you do a great job at it, then the larger, more evergreen clients out there tend to take the company in that direction financially. How do you think ahead to that if your heart, like mine, maybe was in the campaign business first, I don't know if that's true for you, but, but it's true for a lot of people that are listening. Like, how do you think about how do we make sure we always service this market well? 
Yeah, it's a great question. My friend Alex Kautz runs IndieGov. And, I've uh, had him on the show, yes. Oh, nice. Yeah, he's awesome. And he uh, taught product management at General Assembly for a long time and kind of understands our space and, and broader kind of SaaS work. I always think of Alex when I, I think of this conversation because he has a quote that's always really stuck with me from one of his courses, which was, the cardinal sin of SaaS is to abandon your core origin market when you go after new markets. And I think we learned this lesson the hard way at Hustle, right? Because we had a ton of success in 2016 and grew very quickly, went after some adjacent markets in education and nonprofits upon the arrival of a lot of competition. And so then when you kind of refocus on your core market, it's challenging, right? So I think it's really important when you're building software in the space to remain unequivocally focused on your core market, solving their problems, meeting their needs, and really delivering value, right? And if you take your eye off the ball on your core market, it's a death now. Part of that is a matter of discipline and keeping alignment on your executive team, right? To really stay focused, eye on the ball to deliver value. The advantage that we have building tools in this space is that the importance of continuing to solve problems for democratic campaigns does not decrease. We continue to live in increasingly polarized times. We continue to feel like each election is one of the most important of our lifetimes, and it is. And it's going to continue to be for many cycles. So I think the impetus to stay focused on ways to solve problems for democratic campaigns and progressive organizations isn't going anywhere. Fortunately, as the technology evolves, it becomes a little bit easier from a product standpoint to provide offerings and resources that service multiple industries that don't take so much of your product energy away from your core market. So that's really the the hill that we want to climb. How does the competition look so far? I think it looks exciting. There's so much room for innovation in artificial intelligence in our space. There's, there's so much time that we can save. There's so many problems that we can solve. Matt Hodges has actually published some really exciting pieces of using LLMs and other AI models to better refine some of our targeting and evaluations of target districts and how we can customize some of our engagement strategies based on the insights that we can quickly pull out of these models. I'm really excited to see how we can leverage AI and generative AI to solve so many of these questions in 2024 and invite our community to really look at this as an experimental phase. So I really want to encourage folks that are listening, roll up your sleeves, get involved. The bad actors are certainly going to be using AI to their advantage the same way that they've used whatever technology is available that cycle to pursue non-high value goals, right? But that does not mean that we should stop ourselves from taking advantage of responsible use of new technologies when they can help us get an edge in key races. So I really want to encourage folks, embrace these tools, participate in the conversations, shape what the tools look like, and help us collectively determine responsible use of AI and appropriate rules of the road. They're really exciting conversations. They're open. The more people at the table shaping that together, the better and more accurate those rules of the road will be. It's definitely a moment for engagement. And along the same lines, I think the more experiments that are out there, the more people that are building tech using these new tools, the more data points that we'll have to point the way of what's working when we debrief the 24 cycle. And when we look at 26 and 28, we'll have that much more information and learning from tools that are available across the space. Quiller does have some incredible advantages being first to market with this new technology and having a team of highly experienced folks who are 
dedicated to a responsible and high efficacy way to bring this tool to market. But we want to invite the broader community to really participate in this process because I think it's through the feeling of ownership and engagement on this that we'll actually get to the adoption where we see the game-changing effects of the new technology. And in the meantime, we're working really closely with stakeholders to make that happen. In most of the previous roles that I'm aware of that you've had, the title wasn't CEO. How does this fit you? What are you learning in a new role? It's been a blast. Being a CEO is a fun and intense responsibility. What I love about it is being able to build on a lot of experience when I'm building a team, making a product decision, or developing a company strategy. My favorite thing about being a CEO is getting to build a team. The talent in this space The people who are attracted to work in this industry and to build out the political tech ecosystem are absolutely brilliant, and they're motivated and driven by such admirable goals, the chance to build a team that is experienced and diverse in that experience is such an asset to our overall efficacy. So we can all lean on our superpowers to be greater than the sum of our parts and have a lot of fun while doing it. That, to me, is my favorite part of leading a company. I also appreciate being able to lean on two decades of experience to be a decision maker that's confident, right? So I'm going to build a great advisory board. Anytime I'm in a decision-making position, I'm going to want to surround myself by folks who have deep experience in different areas so that when we make decisions or consult on decisions, we're getting a ton of different points of view so we can confidently chart that path forward. I also think that we need more women leadership and diverse leadership in positions of decision-making power across the space. So it's been a real honor to to be able to step in this role, to be trusted by the team, and to have the ability to really build a team and chart a course for bringing a new technology into the space. And I'm happy that it's not my first radio. (laughs) Why don't you kind of catch me up on what have you been building? What's happening in the market? If you have any integrations, you can set those up. We've shipped quite a few at this point. We integrate fully with Action Kit, Action Network, ActBlue, ActBlue Fastlane, and Google Docs. We also just shipped a Chrome extension that you can use for NGP Van. So you can get all of your content created in Quiller into Van, into Action Network, or exported to a Google Doc, for example, if your team needs approval from a principal to sign off on copy. So all of that's very quick to set up. And once you have that in place and you've trained your workspace on how you talk about issues in Quiller, you can create unlimited pieces of content with just a few prompts in a matter of seconds. So we have fundraising emails, we have engagement emails, which you could use for an organizational update, a campaign milestone, an action alert, such as a call-in or petition ask or an event invitation. We also have email rewrites where if you had a piece of content that performed very well and you just want a different version of it with maybe slightly different emotional cues or urgency levels, you can paste that content in. And with all of those email types, you basically answer three questions. like What's the ask? What's the reason? What's the context? And then you have a couple of knobs for setting, you know, which type of emotional tone, what urgency level you want it to strike and approximately how long you want it to be. And you hit generate and it'll Quiller will smush all of those inputs together and generate a first draft one after the next after the next. We recommend creating about four to six drafts, then reviewing the ones that you like and choosing the one that best is the starting first draft. 
It then goes through a very essential proofreading flow. You're going to want to proofread for factual accuracy, people, dates, times, locations. If Quiller doesn't have all the exact details of that, it might try to guess. And so you have to do a really solid proofread to make sure that the factual accuracy is there. It is a very essential step. You also want people in there flexing the things that humans are best at, right? Emotional nuance, candid responses to current events or breaking news. Those are going to be human-centered activities. So let's let Quiller and the algorithm be strong in what it's strong in, and then let's let people be strong in what they're best at, right? So all of that kind of nuance, fact-checking, details, and then a, a final approval process. All in all, for creating a fundraising email, Our partners who came on board said it would take them on average about 90 minutes from start to finish. So from the blinking cursor on a blank page to a final approved draft where they're ready to hit send in their CRM is 90 minute or more process, often more. With Quiller, with the draft process, having to not start from scratch and just get it across the finish line with a fact check and a a little cleanup for nuance, you're looking about a five to 10 minute flow. So just saving about 90 minutes on average for creating a piece of copy is phenomenal. There's a lot of benefits there. The work that we do is so emotionally taxing and fraught, especially in our polarized climate. Having to generate a really moving piece of content that motivates and reaches people is intense to have to do over and over again. So if you can get a piece of content that builds on a template, customizes it, and makes it in your voice and tone so that you only need to use your mind for a proofreading and kind of editing flow, it significantly decreases the cognitive load. And then you can apply that open mind space and that open time to more strategic work, to relationship building, to donor calls, to voter contact to trying the strategies that we never get to on our to-do list because we're just cranking out content. When we're finally unblocked on that, there's a lot of creativity that's being opened up. So that's the email flows. We've got fundraising emails, engagement emails, and email rewrites. We have an SMS generator. So you have a lot of your Quiller workspace that's been trained on your talking points, your issue position, and then you can go through a very quick flow to create drafts of text messages to send to supporters, which is great for just condensing a lot of important work into a very small character count. And we're just starting to work on op-eds. Our op-ed feature is in beta. We're working on it with some really exciting partners uh, in the coming weeks. Uh, we're excited to be getting ready to share more. And having a really refined long-form narrative function is a big feature that we're excited to start rolling out on the platform, starting with op-eds. But of course, that can lead us into other types of long-form narrative as our customers request of us. So that could be additional talking points, maybe scripts for canvassing or phone scripts. Long-form narrative can also be used for mail, like snail mail. There can be some significant time savings. And we're getting a ton of other requests from clients for other content types as well, ad copy, you name it. We have a quick process where we go through a sandbox and some test cases to see how effective our model is at generating different content types. So far, knock on wood, it's gone really well. So I think 2024 is going to be about diversifying the types of content that you can create on the platform. That is a lot about the product and the development of the product. How is it going on the 
adoption front, which is really the sales front from your perspective, I assume? Yeah, there are a number of challenges to bring any new technology to market in any space. But in our space, in the political world, there are some extra considerations that are really essential. And as the first to market generative AI tool in this space, we've really encountered a lot of those. I'm happy to kind of talk them through and, and share. I mean, my, my experience having once introduced a product into the market was resistance, resistance, and then everybody yeah. switching <laughs> over. Yeah. Well, you really paved the way, Nathaniel, right? Well, there were people before me, but yeah, in certain aspects of it, yes. Yeah, no, certainly. And I think a lot of those patterns that you encountered are still true today, right? They definitely were true with texting in 2016, and they're true with generative AI in 2024. There is an initial period of uh, skepticism, right, where people are weary of hype cycles. They are skeptical of tech being able to deliver solutions in the form and style that we need in this space. Our needs are unique and extensive (laughs) when it comes to data and product customization, usability for a variety of different user types, our integrations, our data flows, our modeling, our vocabulary within the tool set, and the accessibility of those tool sets against the very diverse needs of a very big tent party, right? So we have a lot of ground we need to cover to deliver value in a fair way. Price point, product design, integrations, data, you name it. Service, yes. Yes, yeah. And so I I think, you know, anytime you bring a new technology to market in this space, you have to come in really clear-eyed about the needs and committed to making your product fit the needs of this market. And sometimes an off-the-shelf tool from broader Silicon Valley can provide a bunch of value. Sometimes the more operational tools like Slack will work for a variety of use cases and work in this space. But when you start to get into the more nuanced content or data side of things, there's definitely additional customizations. And people have been through a lot. So the skepticism is well-earned. You know, it's it's not out of nowhere. So um, I think in our space, and then with technology more broadly, there is a cycle where there's a lot of coverage, a, a lot of thoughts about what may or may not be possible with this new technology. And then we enter an experimental phase. The experimental phase can be really exciting. You have your early adopters, folks with the interest or resources or an imperative to give it a go with a brand new type of tool and see what's possible. And those early adopters really pave the way for a lot of the additional folks who might benefit from the tool, but don't want to be first because they don't want to take the risk or they don't have the resources until there's a validator out there. Where we've been in a lot of the last half of 2023 was working with those early adopters to refine the product, to prioritize our product roadmap and feature sets, start to roll those out, and also to understand how we were going to need to educate people on what AI can and cannot do. So people have good expectations and also address a lot of the fears and anxieties head on, which is absolutely essential. So just to follow up on that, who's using it and how many of them are? How is it going? Yeah. So adoption has been great so far. People who are using the tool are staying on the tool. They are increasing their usage. They're partnering with us on product feedback. So it gets better and better every day. And I'm really excited about where we go from here. Does that mean these adopters, are they 
Are they digital firms? Are they individual campaigns? Are they a mix of them? Who is adopting it? So we're, we're working with a variety of partners. We have several state parties on board who've been some of our earliest adopters of the tool, and then more and more state parties as they see other state parties getting benefit from using the tool. They're kicking up their fundraising. They're hitting a capacity crunch. So they're able to onboard Dequila right away and start solving capacity crunch issues on day one. So I, I love working with our state party partners because their pain points are extensive. A lot of these state parties have so much work to do and so few resources. Hillary, is that a state party as the state party or does it lead to candidates within that state and, and fundraising firms within that state and so on? It's both. So we are supporting state parties with their own fundraising initiatives, as well as onboarding candidates that the state party is bringing forward who seek to run their own fundraising programs, but to date haven't had capacity. We're also working with individual candidates up and down the ballot who run their own programs in-house or wish they could. We discount the product extensively for our local candidates down to 75 bucks a month. They can onboard onto the tool all on their own through a self-checkout process. So there's not a, a need for a lot of demos and a lot of wait time. They can just purchase the tool, start using it get in there and start running their own programs. A lot of down-ballot candidates are, are running for office with shoestring budgets. Maybe their best friend is their campaign manager or you know a cousin or an auntie. And being able to empower that three-person team to run a fundraising program makes the difference between really running one at all or not over email. You, you have this very unique perspective of having worked at HGL and helped a lot of startups that are in the same space. How would you compare the trajectory of Quiller with sort of a standard trajectory of some of the other firms that you've been involved with and understand their path intimately? So I love all of the HGL portfolio. They're just phenomenal. Great founders, great teams, great products. The thing that the HDL portfolio founders have in common is that they all are so focused on solving problems for clients across the space. The range of problems that they're working to address varies. There's two things that I find that are really unique and, and interesting about Quiller. The first is I think we can really solve an efficiency problem. I think we can start to support staffers in bringing creativity, human relationships back into the organizing processes. And I'm really excited to see where that leads. I'm, I'm not sure I can name off the top of my head a, a lot of other companies that are laser focused on, on that pain point. They're focused on some, some of the other pain point issues. In the so you think that there is more potential for kind of an efficiency gain here that frees up other cycles among the staff. Is that yeah. what you're saying? So I think the first problem that we're knocking out is an efficiency one. We lose talent to other industries where they aren't burnt out so much every cycle. I went to the HGL AI and politics thing and I saw you there. When I was walking out, which I did in the middle of the day as I uh, had some other things to do, I ran into a staffer from one of the bigger and more successful digital firms going out. And we walked for a number of blocks together and chatted. And I asked him if they were, how did, were they using AI in their email writing? And he said, no, we're not. We have really good writers and, and we consider what we do at a, at such a high level and so specific to the campaigns that we work with and the nonprofits that we work with 
that I don't think it's under consideration at this point. And I suspect that there's a pride in the writing in some firms and among some writers that is justified. And maybe this isn't a good fit yet. If you were having that conversation with that person, what would you say to them? Absolutely. And I want to start by saying the writers in our space are some of the best in the business. There's tremendous talent in this space, creativity, drive, and people work really hard to bridge the gap between campaigns and our donor space, our engagement space. It's essential work. Nothing about the use of AI is a ding on the talent of writers in this space. It's an augmentation. And going back to your question earlier about rolling this out and how it's going, I think anytime you introduce a new type of technology that's going to change how we accomplish work, there's always going to be fear and concern as we navigate the process. A lot of the hype cycle around AI broadly in society has talked about job elimination, and it came up a lot with the SAG strikes last summer, and there are a lot of very valid concerns at a societal level about the role of AI and the future of work, and we need to be a part of those conversations. However, I also don't think we should paint AI's advantages in our space with the same brush without looking at where are the places where we actually are being overworked, where we're burning through talent and where we have to turn away clients because we don't have the capacity to take on anybody else to help them run their programs. So I think when we look at the state of fundraising in 2023, 2024, it's tricky. We're going to need to continue to adapt to how we fundraise and how we generate content so that we can hit the volume required to meet the fundraising goals that help our clients win. And that's not a ding on writers in any way. It's an augmentation and a support so that we can hit the volume and maintain the quality that they set the bar for. And that's why we've designed the Quiller product to be a first draft generator. We know that AI can't generate content that will be anywhere near the quality of a staffer and a writer, and we don't want it to be, right? We want it to be a product that can very quickly hand them a set of drafts that are about 70% of the way done that they can review and then add that expertise, add that nuance and talent that's unique to that writer. If chat GPT is the strongest of the large language models out there and you're not using that because of their policies, let's say, I'm just guessing, what makes you think that what you've put together is that significantly better than someone on their own sort of using one of the one of the tools generically the quiller model is llm agnostic so we built the model specifically knowing that the landscape of llms would be changing rapidly every month so the current model that's the best model is going to be completely different from what's the best model in three months and who knows which terms of service policies are going to change when. And we didn't want to tie our whole wagon to one pony if in case something went wrong. The way that we built the Quiller platform was LLM agnostic. We developed a rubric so we knew what our baseline requirements are for privacy, data ownership, security, and customizability, along with bias mitigation. We evaluate LLMs according to that rubric, and from the remaining LLMs that are available to us, we then have a sandbox instance where we test all of the Quiller use cases and evaluate the quality of those outputs. 
we may land in a space where we actually use different LLMs for different content types as we diversify the content types that our users can generate on the platform. But for now, we're really happy with the LLM that we're using. You know, we've migrated it before to make sure that it hits the quality bar. I'm sure we'll inevitably need to migrate or diversify our LLM sourcing again. Uh, but we have really good uh, TOS in place and agreements there. So we feel confident about that model. The bet that we're making is that we can do some of the heavy lifting for LLM selection, customization with a high volume of content types that assist with bias mitigation and making the model produce content that meets the kind of the unique voice and tone that we have broadly in our big tent. Whereas some of the off the shelf models may struggle to replicate a lot of the voice, tone and vocabulary that are more common on the left. And we hear this a lot from people who are using ChatGPT before they hit the political use case block, which inevitably people will run into. Uh, but if they're experimenting with, can I create a piece of copy in ChatGPT? I mean, you definitely could here and there. And for some people, that may be all they need and that works for them. What we're finding is that a lot more people are running into the political use case block sooner. And the other disadvantage of the ChatGPT platform, while extraordinary and mind-blowing in its capabilities, it still is a little bit of a clunky tool where it's this chat format and you have to paste in huge prompts and chunks of copy and contextual information each time in order to generate the way that the drafts are saved is, is a little bit clunky and it doesn't integrate with any of our CRMs, right? So it can be a good off-the-shelf experimentation tool to get familiar with AI, which I definitely encourage everyone to do. Just get in there, get familiar, because then we all get a little bit more comfortable with the new technology and have a little bit more insight into what AI is good at and also what we're better at. It's not a magic silver bullet. It's not going to solve all of our problems or replace all of our work, but it can result in some time savings. The more we get into those tools, the more apparent that becomes. What we are finding as we're in this phase of experimentation is that when the rubber hits the road on crunch time, staff are busy, stretched thin, need to get a piece of copy out the door. You don't want to have to go in and find a Google Doc, paste in your contextual information, go through all these drafts, scroll, 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 find your content, copy, put it in a Google Doc, edit it. Like the time savings start to dwindle when you try to kind of MacGyver uh, ChatGPT instance, and then you still have to deal with the fact that the content is not that well-trained. You've pre-MacGyvered it for them. <laughs> We've done the pre-MacGyvering, yeah. <laughs> is this a, a useful tool for speechwriting? Absolutely, yeah. I think what I'm finding for Quiller is you can really customize at the workspace level a voice. So if you're a larger campaign and you have surrogates, for example, maybe you have a celebrity or an important political figure and you want to and have permission to create content that sounds like the voice and tone and, and speaking or writing style of that individual, when you paste in the writing samples and the other customizations that are available in the workspace, you can generate a piece of content that really starts to move nicely in that direction. Again, you still need a staff member to go in and, and finalize, but the longer form narrative flows that we started to experiment with in the op-ed feature are very compelling. It's pretty good content. So I think to be able to start from a speech that's 70% done and go in for a little bit of that nuance, a little bit of the relevance, um, whether that's cultural relevance 
stylistic. If you're working in specific communities or specific geographies, having someone from those communities, from those geographies, be the human in the loop to do the read is really essential. I'll flag that from the very get-go. But it's it's doing pretty well with having a solid draft to start from for speech writing. If there's a certain variance in emails heretofore written by human beings who are obviously reading other people's emails and copying them and also generating them fresh. Do you think that using Quiller is going to expand the variance or reduce the variance of what the output is? Are things going to all start sounding like they were drafted by Quiller? Or is there enough in here to make them more creative and therefore more variance in what we see going out? I really hope we get a chance to work with our partners on the latter. I think already a lot of funders and emails in the space have quite a few similarities. I mean, there's definitely some differences in in style attributed to a few different approaches that are in place. But every firm and every campaign that's sending out emails has a pretty quick turnaround system that they have to stick to because the volume required to hit our goals is so high. If we get a little bit on bottlenecked on content creation, and that opens up a little bit of time for experimentation, I think you'll start to see a lot more variety in the emails that go out and we'll learn so much together. So I think with Quiller and the efficiency gains on content creation, we'll enter a period of testing where the emails don't all sound like Quiller. They all sound like the variants that we've always wanted to test that we never had time to create. We'll go through a learning phase there. I think very quickly we'll see and develop some best practices around the level of testing and personalization that results in gains or efficiencies, if any. And then I think we'll settle on some new norms um, that are probably a continuation of the existing best practices that a lot of firms and campaigns have already blazed the trail on. Could Quiller at some point be generating the TV ads for a campaign or the first draft of them, the video and the ideas, or there are so many directions that consultants currently work in that one could imagine that the engine that sits behind this as those engines get better and better at different parts of it could be also a co-pilot. Certainly. It's a great question. I've been working in the political tech sector for 15 years now. and So you're just getting into it. I understand. <laughs> <laughs> now, I've stayed in this space because we have very tricky, thorny challenges to solve. There aren't quick fixes. And I think the more that we can retain talent and keep experts and institutional knowledge in this space, the better we'll get at fundamentally solving the challenges that we hold and delivering wins for the wonderful people who work in this space. And for me personally, that's my true motivation. How can I support the people who have dedicated their time and their lives to protecting our democracy and ensuring democratic wins up and down the ballot? Down ballot is another one of my passion places. So I think a lot of our technology has delivered some phenomenal new innovation that can be used top of the ticket. And I'm really excited about that. I think there's more room for growth and and adoption at top of the ticket. And there are resources and opportunities to test at a scale at that level where we learn a lot. 
but it's crucial that we make sure to take that development, that innovation, and deliver it into real accessible solutions for our down ballot candidates. Folks who are working at the local level to build relationships and drive change. There's 500,000 seats up for election this cycle, right? So how can we make sure to diffuse and accessibilize and decentralize the tech in a way that people can make good use of it and they can afford to. I think in some ways there's some really great folks who are running at that problem, you know, thinking of Adam Miller and Universe and a number of of HDL companies and beyond who are working on that, very committed to that. And it's going to take some time to solve that problem, but I think we're starting to chip away at it, which is really exciting. So of course I want to make sure that we solve the the primary pain points that we really want to knock out with Quiller. We want to work on burnout and efficiency and making it easier for people to do the important work that they need to do and still clock out at five o'clock and have a life and have a family and stay in this industry, right? We, we have to solve for that. And I really think Quiller can help. So I think we have to solve that one. We've got to work on improving down ballot accessibility so I think building a tool, keeping it super usable, uh, effective, and cheap, right, 75 bucks a month, is going to be a way that we can really run at that problem and knock it out in 24. So say we do that, right? Say we're starting to deliver real wins, people are feeling good, right? Best case scenario, what else can we do in 24, right? we got a big cycle ahead of us. So say we knock out all of those things, it's going well, adoption's taking off, we're starting to deliver wins for our down-ballot candidates in primaries and other races. Let's look at what else we can do. I think one of the first things that we'll look at is ad copy and additional content types that start to get into experimentation that's happening as streaming takes off, as new types of ad landscapes are shifting, you know, streaming just past cable for the first time this past cycle in the midterms. And I think the associated budgets with ad spend are significant, right? That's where most of our money in campaign cycles go by a vast majority. And I'd love to see us have more efficiency in how we spend money on ads across this space so that we can conserve precious resources and spend it on organizing, spend it on tech, spend it on other pieces of work. So why not generate the direct mail for a small campaign that can't hire a consultant or or a million other things? Why not generate the TikTok video down the road or whatever the platform might be then? We're first to market on generative AI for campaigns, right? There's a lot of directions that we can go. And fortunately, we have a, a really agile model where we can deliver new content types quickly and continue to experiment and refine, make sure the quality is really high and keep going. So immediately we're in a situation where we need to evaluate what's the biggest bang for our buck, the most impactful, most supportive, and just most useful types of content that can be generated while still holding the bar on quality for our core model and our core types of content. We're looking to our pilots, our partners, our customers from state parties, from agencies, from nonprofits, from direct campaigns to tell us what they need. And we start to experiment based on that early feedback from our earliest clients of what would be most useful next. That's where SMS came from. That's where op-eds came from. We're hearing a lot of interest in ad copy. And I think there is a lot of room for us to be the content machine that allows for wider experimentation that could deliver some real ad spend efficiency at the ecosystem level that I think would be quite significant um, and impactful. But I want to make sure that we also stay in our lane. 
we don't need to be another CRM. We can be an asset to the CRM. There can be a cooler button in that tool. We can make it really easy for you to get your cooler copy into your specific CRM and ship it out. But we don't need to build that, right? What we need to be good at is excellent content and supporting people and getting final drafts done as quickly as they can so that they can move on with their day. And I think it'll be the same thing with ad spend or, as you mentioned, direct mail. I don't think that we'll need to be the logistical partner on the delivery, whether that's on or offline. That copy can go to a different partner who is the best at that. And we want to be the best at content. It seems like a pretty fun place to be where you've located yourself, is it? Yeah, it's been fun. I mean, the early days of a startup are very fun for me because the work is big and small. We're a full-time team of three, right? So we're designing the logo, we're sending the emails, we're onboarding the customers. We move really quickly and it's kind of all hands on deck. We all wear a lot of hats and have a lot of fun. Uh, The early days, I think, are are some of the most special days for any startup. You're not three people now though, right? Yeah, we're three people. Oh, wow. Yeah, we're a lean team. Um, But we're going to be hiring soon. Stay tuned. (laughs) But, you know, I I think we really designed the tool so that people can kind of get in there, get what they need without needing a lot of handholding and a lot of support. That was very intentional uh, because we really want to scale this cycle. So that's a lot of like the small kind of day-to-day task, you know, just task after task after task. But in the early days of a startup, you're also thinking big. You're asking yourself, where do we want to be in five years? What do we want to support our customers on first? What's the appropriate role for AI in elections in 2024, in 2026, 28? And how do we build a company that sets the bar on how to do good with AI and the electoral cycle? There's a lot of attention on the risks. And we need to be really clear-eyed about the very real risks of generative AI in the hands of bad actors who don't have an ethical framework that they operate in when it comes to electioneering and interfering with the electoral process. And we need to be ready to respond to that. Fortunately, so much of that response is a muscle that we've already built in responding to misinformation. And so much of the best practice around fighting misinformation goes back to things that Democrats are great at, trusted messengers and long-term relationships where people get their information from people they know and trust and can help a little bit with the fact-finding and sorting through an ever-increasing pool of content, which may or may not be true, as AI gets more and more sophisticated in creating especially video audio that can be misleading. I think we'll need to really develop some rules of the road on disclosure, particularly for audio and video copy. Maybe disclosure is the pathway or truth-telling is the pathway, but we need a format by which to hold bad actors accountable without holding ourselves back when we act in accordance with the rules of the road. And I think that's where a lot of people's heads are at as trainers, as leaders, as funders, as decision-makers is how do we align on some rules of the road and frameworks for good use of AI so that we can take advantage of these new tools and hold bad actors accountable and call out when people aren't using it appropriately. And so I think that's a really interesting conversation. And that's what I mean about thinking big as CEO of Quiller in 2024. It does seem like it even puts any company using AI at risk if there's a story about even a well-meaning client misusing the tool, for example, just sending out that 70% 
draft without reviewing it and it's got its hallucinations or makes a mistake. You have to take responsibility as a campaign, but it's a black eye to the tool potentially, or you could think of even worse scandals related to that. How much effort do you have to put into the coaching around the use? I think the risks for poorly created drafts on untrained LLMs, such as if you just ask ChatGPT to spit something out and don't fact check it, that's going to be the highest risk, right? Is if you ask an untrained model for copy and it's going to guess at everything and produce really poor content, if that easiest to use tool, free tool, poor quality makes it out, that's the biggest risk. The second biggest risk is if somebody doesn't customize their workspace. So the way that we've designed Quiller is the first step is to train your workspace on your organization values, your organization voice and talking points. So so much of the email and the content that you generate in Quiller is going to be so much further along in terms of being done because it's drawing from the content that you fed it about the campaign and talking points. So there's some risk mitigation in the way that we've designed the product So it's delivering copy that's so much more likely to be close to done. But it doesn't replace a finalization and a proofreading process. Uh, We're looking at a couple of ways to flag the content that people may be less confident or that the model is less confident is accurate to kind of kind of spot check almost like a grammarly, make sure we draw the user's attention to anything that could use their review for factual accuracy. You know, we're definitely looking into some options there. But I think at the end of the day, it really comes down to user education, user training, right? And thankfully in our space, there's amazing trainers, uh, organizations like Arena, Digidems and so many groups who are training staff on how to use technology confidently, training the trainers. And a lot of that early training on how to think about AI is really addressing that this is a brand new type of workflow, a brand new type of copy editing. And here are the associated best practices with how to engage in content creation that uses AI. So as much as we can hold the bar uh, and the product in our training and our onboarding, the more that we can decrease the likelihood that there are folks who are using AI without or copy editing. Or just plain editing, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so the, yeah. the less likely that people are using the tool without editing it appropriately and doing the fact checks are absolutely necessary. We're so early in AI and politics, it's ridiculous. And yet a revolution is underway in every area of knowledge work. What's your sort of summary of the state of the ecosystem on the progressive side in generating these companies like yours and others across the, across the space? How are we doing as a community on it? Yeah, I, I feel optimistic. Actually, so the end of January 2024, Higher Ground Labs, Cooperative Impact Lab, and Zinc Lab had a convening in Washington, D.C. to talk about AI and campaigning and organizing, and over 260 people came. And it was such a great gathering. There were campaigns and organizations and tool builders just getting on the same page about what is AI, how is it being used, how might we use it in the future, and what are our biggest, most urgent questions to answer around usage. Hats off to that convening team for getting folks in the same room to start to lay out rules of the road and identify needs, because it's really going to be guided by what solves problems and in what order. 
And I think if we continue to ask those questions, we'll be in the best position to build technology and use technology to solve problems in the appropriate order and solve the right problems. Is it possible for you to see five years down the road, what would you like to see happening in AI and progressive politics? If if you are able to execute, if other people are, what do you think will be different about the world if we do it right? So Betsy Hoover called this out in one of the panels that she was at in the convening this week, where right now we talk about AI as if it's a separate technology category. And I think that that is a temporary phenomenon. We'll have maybe some new tool types that they're like Quiller, you know, there's there's not really a precedent for a content generator, but ultimately all of the tools that we use now or the or most of them will just continue to integrate the latest new technology features into that tool set. And currently that's AI. So we'll start to see a lot of tools in the space that integrate elements of natural language processing, machine learning, or other ways that LLMs or algorithms can improve the quality of outputs or performance of those tool sets across the space. And so it'll be less about look at this new technology, it's AI, and more look at how much our tools have improved, how much better they perform, how the service delivery and efficacy of the tools have been enhanced by the latest technologies available. And it'll be less about pre-AI, post-AI, and it'll just be a general up-leveling of tool sets across the board, along with some additional capabilities for performance, for data and analytics, and a couple of other things that we'll have to see what comes along. Do you have a sense of what's happening in AI and politics on the conservative right-wing side? I think that they are also interested in the way that AI is going to be transformative, short-term and long-term. I'm sure they're probably running at some efficiency plays. I don't think think there's anything else they're looking at right now, but who knows. And plus, if they feel like we got ahead, or then they will try to copy it or improve on our ideas. Yeah, yeah I, I think that that has tended to be the trend over the past couple of cycles, and I think will continue to be the case in 24. Well, Hillary, it's always a pleasure to have a chance to talk to you. Is there something I should have asked you that I failed to? I think we covered so much great ground. And Nathaniel, I really appreciate being able to chat with you about the growth of an entirely new type of technology in this space because you've laid the groundwork for technological excellence in political campaigns and seen so many things come and go. It's fun to talk with you about this new thing and really explore the possibilities of what it could be. I appreciate our conversation. Thank you. I think you may overestimate me there in that process, (laughs) which is now shockingly broad and there's so many smart people in it. But thank you. And I really have a lot of fun following what's going on right now to the extent that's possible. Can I ask you a a quick question though? Yes. But by the way, I am for my thousandth episode, I am asking my former guests to ask me a question. So, so if you wouldn't mind, we can do it as part of this podcast, or I can record one now and use it on that, which is upcoming. I don't know which way you want to go on that. Sure. Let's let's start it now. Okay. Well, uh, what's your question? So you asked me a minute ago where, you know, five, 10 years down the line, I see the role of AI or, you know, the new types of technology in this space. Having been such a formative part of the political tech landscape from the very beginning of 
political tech being a thing. What do you think can or should change the most in the next five years? Well, by the way, the use of computers in politics goes back before I was born. Winthrop Rockefeller running for governor of Arkansas and using using computers to run lists. It has gone along with the development of computers. I always feel rather humble about being asked a question about the future. I think it's very hard to predict. I hope that we can find a way to be a combination of more integrated and more distributed. The big problem for a long time has been how do we share information? How do we incorporate innovation broadly, allow the incentives of the market and people's commitment to winning to flourish, to try their own ideas, and then to fit them in and share them and apply them broadly. And sometimes that runs counter to the incentives of a particular firm or many particular firms, or not just firms, but the nonprofits and other entities that are part of the process. So I hope that we get better and better at developing an ecosystem that works to generate improvement and to pull it together. How's that for an answer? That's great. Yeah. I'll, I'll get right to work on it because I agree. <laughs> <laughs> I wish you luck with this enterprise and I love the perspective that you bring to it. Thanks. That was Hillary Lair. She is at quiller.ai. This is Nathaniel G. Perlman with the Great Battlefield Podcast. You can find us at greatbattlefield.com or by searching for Great Battlefield in places where podcasts are found. The Great Battlefield is now part of the Democracy Group Podcast Network. Visit democracygroup.org to learn more about other podcasts that cover democracy and civic engagement. You can also help me by leaving comments and good ratings on Apple Podcasts or elsewhere and by sending me suggestions for great guests to nperlman at gmail.com.